You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I entered into seminary, I had so much to learn about ministry. I'd studied music in undergrad, and so I, I really didn't have great command of how to do the reading and the research that would be required for building good arguments and writing well-founded papers, which is sort of the backbone of preparation for ministry. But the thing is, I thought that I did. That was until I turned in my first research paper and received it back absolutely covered with red ink. According to the professor, the core problem with my paper was my references. I had not built a good argument, and my paper was not well-founded because I was referencing popular-level works rather than legitimate authorities on the subject of my paper. I didn't have a single footnote from the most important authorities on my subject. But the professor kindly took me under his wing and he redirected me. He pointed me to subject matter authorities on the subject of my paper. And he gave me guidance about how to read these authorities fruitfully. And he offered counsel on how to thoughtfully interact with these authorities in my research. And it transformed not only the rest of my seminary journey, but the rest of my ministry journey. Most of us think that we're good at building a good life that is well-founded. But if we were to submit our lives to the Lord for a grade, we would get it back covered with red ink. And the core problem of the lives that we have built is our references. Many of us have not built a good life that is well-founded because we are referencing popular-level ideas from our culture rather than referencing the legitimate authority on the subject of human life, the Lord of life. When it comes to the decisions that we make concerning our careers, our relationships, parenting, money, if we took an honest look at the plans that we make for the future, many of us don't have a single footnote from the author of life. But in our text for today, the Apostle James sort of takes us under his wing, pointing us to the subject matter authority. James gives us guidance on how to read the Lord's authority fruitfully. And he offers counsel on how to thoughtfully interact with the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, and the fatherly care of God so that we can build meaningful lives. And if we take the apostle seriously this morning, it will change our entire trajectory. It will change the nature of our journey in this Christian life. So today, I'm going to speak from the subject of faith and the future. Faith and the future. And we're going to approach this text through two points. And we're going to look in this text, and we're going to see the poor references of folly and the rich references of faith. The poor references of folly, remember this is a book about wisdom and faith and wholeness. We're going to see the poor references of folly 
and the rich references of faith. So let's look at our first point where we consider the poor references of folly. Now, James doesn't waste any time beating around the bush as this new section develops. He gets right to it. If you take a look at verse 13 and verse 14a, the first part, it reads like this. James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now, if we're being absolutely honest, and we can be absolutely honest because we're family here, right? If we're being absolutely honest, when we read verse 13, it seems very harmless, doesn't it? We have said these kinds of things. We have made these kinds of statements all the time. Yeah, this summer, we're going to go on a family trip to do this. Or, you know, you know uh, pretty soon, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, to, uh, you know, change my career and, and I'm going to eventually be working in the White House. You know, uh, after I finish this degree, I'm going to go to law school, and then I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. Verse 13 seems very harmless because this is the way we talk all the time. Nothing to see here, right? James says, wrong, because he's looking at the thinking behind such planning. And though we might hear a harmless statement of future plans, James hears an underlying pride and presumption at the heart of such thinking. And he exposes the subtext of this statement by saying, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James is essentially saying, when you plan this way and talk this way, you're presuming to know what you do not know. You're presuming to control what you cannot control. And you're arrogantly ignoring what you should not ignore, namely the will of God. The glaring omissions here in this statement are humble submission to the will of God and humble prayer for the wisdom of God in your planning and decision making. When we make no reference to the Lord in our planning and decision making, we're left with the poor references of folly. And what are these poor references that our modern world tries to build a meaningful life upon? What are these poor references in our modern world? In other words, to put it a different way, when you are not indexing your decision making to the will of God, what is the foundation of your decision making? How are you making decisions? You're making them based upon the poor references of folly. And in our modern world, this is what some of those are. We make decisions by reference to profit. Not P-R-O-P-H-E-T. P-R-O-F-I-T. Profit. I'd venture to guess that most people, even Christians, most people make career decisions Largely based upon making more money, so long as the job is a basic fit. After observing the decision-making of many professing Christians, we could easily conclude or be led to believe that God's calling is always about making more money. Many take it as a foregone conclusion 
that an offer of more money is an obvious indication that it's the right decision. Put another way, there is a common presumption that the most profitable opportunity financially and God's will are always one and the same. But you know what this is? This is just an intellectual version of a prosperity gospel. That's all that is. You can talk about Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn and, and all the prosperity televangelists. All the while, you have your own underlying prosperity gospel, albeit covered by a little bit more intellectual firepower. That's all this is. And we even find ourselves pressing this idea into our kids when we guide them away from vocations with modest compensation and toward vocations with higher compensation without any reference to God's will and calling on that child's life. This idea is entirely traceable to our materialistic culture. And it's completely, hear me, completely absent from Scripture. Profit is a poor reference for your decision-making. But we also reference pragmatism. This is to say that we often presume that the right decision is the practical option, what seems to work best from our limited vantage point. We often act like a simple list of pros and cons is sufficient for decision-making. And many an American church is built off of this reference to pragmatism. What seems to work best for getting people into the church is treating them like customers and attracting them with fog machines and special lighting and, and slick marketing with little to no concern for their formation. The primary question is not, is this faithful and wise? But rather, does it work? But listen to me. It wasn't pragmatic for Jesus to tell the rich young ruler to sell everything that he had and give it to the poor, but it was the will of God. It wasn't pragmatic for Jesus to dine with sinners and tax collectors and to rebuke the religious leadership, but it was faithful. It wasn't pragmatic for Jesus to build his church on a ragtag group of Galilean peasants, but it was the will of God. Pragmatism is a poor reference for decision-making and planning. What else do we reference? Comfort and security. This is to say that modern people tend to make decisions based upon what will bring the most earthly comfort and security. It's waving and smiling at neighbors, but never inviting them into your home because it could get uncomfortable and awkward. It's nibbling around the edges of cross-cultural community, but keeping relationships across lines of difference at arm's length because it might expose me uncomfortably. It's deciding to build bigger barns to hoard your money rather than giving generously because your security is tied to the number of digits in your bank account. It's making the decision to schedule your family fun first. And then if there's any time for worship and mission, you kind of fit it into the, the spaces. If you can't say amen, say ouch. 
because I know this community, and I love you all dearly. And that's why we have to talk about it. Think about it. If comfort were the proper reference for our decision-making, there would have been no incarnation. There would have been no cross. There would have been no atonement, and there would have been no salvation for us. Comfort and security are poor references for your decision-making. But we also reference false narratives in our culture for our decision-making. And this is to say that modern people often make decisions and hatch plans by referencing the false stories of our day. Now, I love the way that Alan Noble, in his book, You Are Not Your Own, I like he has a passage that captures this just right. Listen, this is what he says, and I quote, When a film movingly portrays a young couple finding happiness in romance, viewers can begin to imagine their own lives validated through a romantic relationship. When an athlete tells her story of overcoming adversity to win a gold medal, we can imagine our lives justified through some great achievement. When we see a happy, attractive, wealthy young people on YouTube living their best life and sharing it all online, we can believe that fame or attractiveness or wealth can make our lives meaningful. When a well-produced TV commercial promises you that buying a Mazda will make you feel alive, you start to think that maybe, just maybe it will. Even though every other purchase you've made in life has failed to give you that sense of purpose and fullness, on some level you still think maybe this time it will happen. Then again, you may be disgusted by the advertisement of another fossil fuel guzzling machine and instead think about the example of the brave young climate change activist. If a 13-year-old girl can give her life to save the planet, maybe I can too. And that would be something real, something lasting, something unambiguously important. Do you see how false narratives affect our decision-making and our planning for our futures? All of these are poor references for decision-making and planning because they're all just different ways of taking your life into your own hands. What is conspicuously absent from these references? First, a sober understanding of our lives. Look at verse 14, the back part. James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. For you are a mist. Regardless of how we try to conceal it, regardless of how we try to downplay it or ignore it, there is a stubborn uncertainty and brevity to our lives in this world. Smoke wafts from a campfire and it is soon gone. Steam rises from a kettle and it soon disappears. And James says to us, this is your life. This is you. Poof. And the scriptures are peppered with these references to the fragility and the brevity of our lives. 
Isaiah said, all flesh is like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Life is a vapor. You know, church properties used to be planned with a graveyard flanking the sanctuary so that every Sunday when worshipers would come to church, they would be reminded that what we do in here is a matter of life and death. What we do in here is deal in ultimate things. And the world tries to distract you from the ultimate realities of life. It tries to soothe you. It puts a pacifier in your mouth like cars and material things and trips and new experiences. Those are pacifiers. What we're dealing with in here is ultimate realities, ultimate truths that you will have to live with forever. And I'm afraid that many of us have lost that perspective because we are so enchanted by the toys and trivialities of this world. But James would have us reclaim that vision. A sober understanding of our lives is conspicuously absent from this way of planning and decision making. But second, a humble reliance upon God is conspicuously absent. This is what's underlying this thinking. We may give the Lord a head nod. We may even offer up a few half-hearted prayers to check the box. But James is challenging us and calling us to explore the disposition with which we approach our lives in the world. Do you come with your plans open, ready for the Lord to edit? Lord, where am I wrong? What do I need to be about? Am I off here? Or do you simply come to get a divine rubber stamp on your pre-existing plan? Are you already committed? Like, you already know you're going to do this, but you're trying to make yourself feel better by bringing it into a, a, a semi-time of prayer. It's not really a prayer. James is directing us to the authority on human life as our reference for decision-making and planning so that we can build lives of wholeness, lives of fruitfulness, lives of flourishing, whether you have 50 more years to live or six months. You know, this life is not like that Justin Timberlake movie where, you know, everyone had the number of days that they had remaining on their arm. None of us have that. How many of us could have foreseen that we would be where we are right now five years ago? How many twists and turns and ups and downs and hardships and trials and victories and have happened in between now and then. We do not know what tomorrow holds, but we do know the one who holds tomorrow. And he should be the primary reference for our decision-making. I've used this illustration many times in this community, but I think it bears repeating here again as it relates to decision-making and planning. If you think about your life, just your journey up to this point, what did the 10-year-old you think of the 5-year-old you's decision-making and planning? Pretty, pretty dumb, right? Idiotic, right? 
What did the 20-year-old you think of the 10-year-old you's decision-making and planning? The same. Dumb, know nothing, have no perspective, no insight, foolish, right? What did the 30-year-old you think of the 20-year-old you's decision-making and planning? You know nothing. You're green. You're wet behind the ears, right? Like, well, what did the 40-year-old you think of the 30-year-old you's decision-making and planning? Struggle bus, right? You can continue to play this out to prove the fact that there is no point in your life at which you are sufficient and wise and all-seeing and ready to be autonomous. At every point in our lives, every point in our journey and stories, we are in desperate need of the Lord. His wisdom, his guidance, his correction, his rebuke. We are in deep need of the Lord. And it's for this reason, if we know who we are, then we can appreciate why it is that we need the Lord as our primary reference for our decision-making. Remember, all of these poor references are just different ways of self-making, of maintaining control of your own life, taking your life into your own hands. And that doesn't generally go very well. But James doesn't leave us here. He brings us to a different alternative, a different direction for the way that we live and make decisions and plan our lives. And this brings us to our second point, the rich references of faith. Now, James pivots to guide us to the reliable and authoritative source for decision-making, planning, and building a meaningful life of wholeness and flourishing. Take a look at verse 15. James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, throughout my years in the black church, I constantly heard seasoned saints say things like this. If the Lord say the same, I'm going to retire next year. If the Lord's willing and the creek don't rise, I'm going to pay off my debt next year. Yes, I am country, and so are my people. I rarely heard them make a pronouncement about their future plans without reference to the will of God and a determined submission to his providence. These brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, squarely placed their lives in the Lord's hands, and they were ready to submit their decisions to a sovereign God. And they were willing to endure divine disruptions to their plans. And they were determined to trust God's heart even when they couldn't trace his hand. In the trials of life, in the disappointments where their plans were disrupted, I witnessed a stubborn-rooted faith that shaped me. <laughs> I will never forget when I got my acceptance to college. Uh, I ran across the street to my grandparents' house. And my pap, my grandfather, was sitting on the front porch reading the newspaper. And I came in, and I was like, Pap, guess what? He said, what? I said, I got accepted to NYU, and I'm going to New York City for college. And he looked at me. He said, huh? 
Now, my grandfather was a little hard of hearing, and I couldn't tell if he just didn't hear me. And so I said, I said, I got accepted to NYU, and I'm going to New York City for college in the fall. And he goes, you what? <laughs> and then I realized what he was doing. I said, I got accepted to NYU, and if the Lord say the same, I'm going to college in New York City in the fall. And he looked at me and said, that's all right, son. That's all right. <laughs> you see, I was formed in that, that black church way. Now, listen, we know sometimes it can just be a phrase that you, that you use to cover up self-ambition, right? Like, there, there's a way that you can just throw that phrase like, that's enough, right? But my experience of these brothers and sisters is that they were formed to index their lives to the will of God and to submit humbly, trusting to his will. That blessed me. James explicitly says that we should consciously consider our decision-making and our planning as contingent upon the will of God. Now listen to me. Rather than relativizing God's providence and sovereignty and absolutizing your decisions and your planning, you are supposed to relativize your decisions and your planning to absolutize the sovereignty and the providence of God. One is immovably good, the other is not. One is immovably reliable, and the other is flaky. We know what it is if we're being honest. There are clear statements about the will of God in Scripture, such as 1 Thessalonians 4.3, which says, For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Also, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you want to know what the will of God is? These tell you what the will of God is. 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, not return fire, and, and attack. This is the will of God. But in a situational, there are times where we need wisdom to discern the will of God, such as vocational decisions or setting budgetary priorities in your family. But the question we all need to wrestle with is this. Is the Lord my first call or my last resort when it comes to decision-making and planning for my life? Is the Lord your first call or your last resort? That will tell you so much about where you're at when it comes to decision-making and planning. Whether for big decisions or small ones, do I instinctually and practically acknowledge my need of God's wisdom, God's help, and God's spirit to discern and submit to God's will? James specifically names the centrality of the will of God in this passage. But I think that we have warrant to identify additional references as we seek to build lives of meaning, purpose, and wholeness. We need to reference not just the will of God, but we need to reference the promises of God. You know, many of our bad decisions and plans result from discounting or forgetting the promises of God. To be very practical, God's promise to provide for his people 
should shape our decisions around money and vocations. You don't have to choose the vocation that makes more money if it is not the one to which you're called because your father provides. We need to remember God's promised presence with us and that should shape our decisions around engaging our place. God's promise of rest should calm our anxieties and stress around career success and reputation. Have you ever found yourself fretting over a big decision because you think that this is really going to be the difference maker in my life forever going forward? God won't be able to place me anywhere else. I will be locked in if I make the wrong decision here. Listen to me. God's promise of rest is, is freedom from that. He's the king. He tells us that the heart of the king is like water in his hand. And you're concerned that he can't bless you beyond measure because your, your decisions here as you're trying to seek his will and you're concerned you might make the bad decision is going to ruin your life? Nah, it's not like that. He's promised you rest. But we can also make reference to the character of God. His faithfulness should make us fearless about our future because though our near-term future in this life may be full of trouble and trials and hardships, the Lord has laid up a crown of righteousness for all who have loved his appearing. That's the end of the story, no matter what happens in between now and then. He's faithful. His goodness should quiet our hearts when we're anxious over potential outcomes of our decisions, knowing that he will ultimately bring about the most glorious ends for us and for the world. His patience should give us a sense of freedom from fear that our God-honoring decisions will ruin our lives. Whenever you are seeking his face for wisdom and direction in your decision-making, you don't have to be afraid that you're going you're gonna to screw up your whole life. You know what I mean? Sometimes we can act like, like God isn't going to come through on these things that he's promised us. Like his character is somehow going to shift. But remember what James says, there is no shadow of turning in him. We must also reference the people of God. Community is a divine gift to help us faithfully process and discern our decisions and our planning. We shouldn't be coming to our community for a rubber stamp on what we've already decided. You know how depressing it is? It's been in the past when people have come to me with a fate accompli, with just that they made a decision, they're moving, they're leaving, never said a mumbling word, never sought counsel, never heard a word from their community. They just decided. And then I get the phone calls later, hey, I, I need some counsel. Life is terrible right now. <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe that's because you made a decision purely based upon making more money and not taking the full picture of your life and community and other aspects of flourishing into consideration. Had you referenced community in your decision making, you would probably be in a different place right now. And I don't say it harshly like that, but that's what's going on in my head. Your community is crucial to the actual development of sound plans and wise decisions. You know wisdom is not typically something you can possess and maintain on your own. And 
I want to make this note too, because I think this is really important. A lot of times we use the language of wisdom for things that are not pictured in the Bible as wisdom. For example, it's wise to be like real miserly and conservative with your money. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's presumption. You're backfilling wisdom with your own important meaning. You have to look at the situational to make a decision as to what is wise. Remember, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Which one is it? You have to figure that out in the situational in the context of community. Stewardship is, is considered in the same way. Well, I just want to be a good steward. And sometimes we pass over generosity toward the needy or the poor under the pretext of wisdom and stewardship. But it's not that at all. It's not that at all. We must interrogate our presumptions around these categories. The Proverbs tell us that there is safety in an abundance of counselors. We need to reference the people of God in our decision making. But ultimately, where is the good news here? If you're feeling like you're getting jacked up this morning, that's all right. Because there's good news for us in this passage. You see, listen, your life, rather than being in your own hands, your life does not have to be in your own hands. Your life is in the creative hands, Christian. Your life is in the creative hands that sculpted the mountains and scooped out the depths of the oceans. Your life is in the powerful hands that scattered the enemy of your life. Your life is in the generous hands that hold pleasures forevermore. Your life is in the nail-scarred hands of the Lord who loves you. The final word of Christ in this earthly life was this. Into your hand I commit my spirit. And he said this not just as an act of his own faith in the Father, but to show you and I that the, the best place, the, the safest place, the happiest place for your life is in the hands of God. And that is the, the place from which sound plans and healthy decision-making is made. Jesus shows us by that comment that even in the depths of suffering and pain, there's no better place to be than in the hands of the Father. When you know that your life is in his hands, you will lift your hands in praise and gratitude and relief. When you know that your life is in his hands, you will clap your hands and shout to God with songs of joy. When you know that your life is in his hands, you can hand over your selfish plans and schemes and receive true joy, true meaning, true purpose, true security, and true life. And you can trust his plans when they override your plans. You can trust his plans. Listen, if his plans led to the wonder of the incarnation, if his plans led to the power of the cross, if his plans led to the hope of the resurrection, if his plans led to the glory of the ascension, if his plans led to the compassion of his high priestly ministry, 
If his plans led to your redemption, if his plans led to your justification, if his plans led to your adoption, if his plans led to a new covenant and and new life, and if his plans will ultimately lead to a new heaven and a new earth, then you can safely loosen your grip on your life and your plans and rest in him. You can submit it all to the one who loves you, to the all-wise God who always knows the best road to the best destination for the world and for your life. Yes, it's going to come with some measure of suffering in this life. Yes, there are going to be real disappointments in this life. Yes, there are going to be trials that expose us in this life, but it's all taking place under the umbrella of the fatherly love of God and his declaration over you, beloved. That's what marks it all. That's what shapes all of his ways with his people. You can rest from your self-salvation projects that many of your plans and decisions entail. You can rest from your anxious scheming and planning to try and provide the security that you think the Lord doesn't provide. You can rest from your need to control and manipulate and intimidate and retaliate and dominate to accomplish your bootleg plans. I pray that our plans And our decisions going forward corporately and individually, I pray that our plans and decisions would have the Lord's fingerprints all over them. I pray that going forward, our plans and decisions would be filled, filled, I tell you, with the footnotes of redeeming love and heavenly wisdom that comes from above. Let's pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.